All right. Uh, open your Bibles to First Peter chapter two, and it's you're not going to have to really, uh, you're not going to have to. Well, you're going to have to thumb around a lot if you want to follow all the scriptures that I'm going to reference. But the basis of the, the rootedness of this message is in a single verse, actually half of a verse, uh, in First Peter chapter two and verse twenty-one. And if you, if you don't have a Bible, you can look up your, on your phone or on the screen, and, and here it is. And I'll, I'll give you just a little bit of background. I, I've, been, I've been passing through the, the, the latter part of the New Testament, the epistles, and getting into Peter's epistles, Peter's letters. And I just was really stirred this week as I was reading through uh, the, the, Peter's first letter, there's just so much rich material that's in there, but I also just had this sense when I was, I stopped on this verse and began to pray because Peter's life is, I mean, he's, he, he's the most, he's the second most referenced person in the Gospels. Like other than the life of Jesus, we, we know and see more about Peter's life than, than anybody else. And so we know a lot about kind of his up and down existence, but this, this, it just hit me as I was reading this passage the place from which he was he was writing this, and the and the depth of of understanding and relationship that he would have, and so uh, he, he's writing in here about what it means for us to to live a life of submission unto the Lord, even in the in the wake or the face of suffering and difficulty, even in the wake of of being a bond servant to be to be under the a servant to someone who is hiring us as a house servant, and the difficulties of working in that kind of a context. And in the midst of that, he offers this passage. And I really want to, uh, I'll read it all, but I'll tell you that the, the, the focus really begins where after the first comma. So, for, for to this you have been called. Now, here's really, here's the emphasis. Here's the highlight. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I'm going to break down for us uh, the concept of obedience through the twofold work of the cross. And, and that's really where we're going with this. So let me pray, and we'll get it, dive into it. Jesus, open your word up to us. We want to be formed by your word. We want to tabernacle with your word. Uh, you, you, you say, you tell us that, that, that you're the very word that you are became flesh and dwelt amongst us, Lord. And we ask for a sense of your habitation in this room, that you would dwell amongst us through your word, that we would be transformed by it. It wouldn't just be information or inspiration, but we would actually be transformed by your word. Lord, if you're going to do that work, then you're going to have to start with the fool who's standing up here declaring to speak your word. Do it in my heart, Lord. I just lay my life down before you and confess before you, Lord, that I have difficulty loving you with my whole heart. Oftentimes it's divided. Oftentimes it's splintered into places where it shouldn't be. So I ask, Lord, that you would gather up all of my heart, even the broken parts of my heart, and you would, you would focus it in on you. Give me words, and I want those to be given to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is calling you to a life of obedience Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Some of you are going, man, that'd be awesome. Let's get to the pizza. Um, but really, 
in, in, a, in a nutshell, that's the point of this message is, is that to, I, I said last week that the series of messages I want to walk through is in essence imagining that the kingdom of God has been, has been birthed into reality through the person of Jesus. And he says that all of the prophetic stuff of the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus as the fulfillment as the Messiah to be born in time to usher the king who would, who would, he would sit over the, uh, on the throne over the kingdom was brought forth in him and fulfilled, but yet he also says it's near, and the imagery is almost like one who's pulled into the driveway, knocking at the door, but isn't yet in the house. And so I've said, I had this picture of what would we do if we knew that Jesus was literally at the door? What would we do to posture ourselves to, to more fully or better receive the inbreaking of the kingdom of God? Like if Jesus is getting ready to come into your literal house, what would you do to make your spiritual house ready, your literal place ready for Jesus to enter in? Last week we talked about the concept of joy and how imperative it is uh, that we would, we would plow into to a, a deeper sense and understanding of joy. This week I want to get at obedience and how obedience is primary to posturing ourselves. It's stirring in me a lot in a lot of ways. One of the ways is when we gathered on Friday night and watched a film about our brothers and sisters in the global church that, that are an underground church of Iran, they, they introduced to us a whole different method or means of discipleship, which is completely confounding to the Western mindset because we've been brought up in a mindset of doctrine-based discipleship. In other words, you know, you sit down in a class and you learn over the course of many years, and then maybe at some point, if you get it and all the tumblers fall into place, maybe you'll activate that in some way by serving him in some capacity. But in their context, what they demand is they demand obedience from the very first meeting, even before you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. And what they're saying is, is that this is what they see in the Bible. And I'm going to tell you something. They're right. That obedience-based discipleship produces fruit. And so it's very much stirring in my heart about what does this look like for us? Because oftentimes, it's like the Chesterton quote, and I'll butcher it. It says something like, Christianity hasn't been tried and proven wrong. It's been tried and proven difficult. <laughs> something like that. You know, the people give up because it's not easy. And I, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And so in a sense, that's stirring in my heart. In another sense, it's stirring in my heart because a lot of the work you do as a local pastor and just dealing with the things that happen in people's lives. And particularly, I've been thinking a lot about this in the realm of parenting. Even though my children are adult children, you don't stop parenting. And uh, I've been having a lot of conversation, actually Brian and I talking a lot about a book that's not, it's not the Bible. It's, it's a secular book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And I, I tell you, if you want to go read a book that will blow you away, go read. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind, which is dealing with a lot of the stuff that we see happening in our culture around us in a way we've not prepared a generation to succeed you know, because of the way that uh, our parenting in particular has been, a, has been an issue. And one of the things that it's struck, on, it's, it's brought me back to is, into remembrance is, the, is one of the, I guess, a training that Carol and I went through that's it, called uh, Growing Kids God's Way. And one of the, the key takeaway from that was within that parenting style was the expectation, the demand for first-time obedience, that we would parent our kids with this in mind. And, and, and so this thing stirs me. I was thinking about this week, some, and I went back and looked through our workbook at some of the fruit of that or the reason why that's, that's so important. And I'm going to break this down for you in a bit because I acknowledge that obedience is a really awkward word. You can feel almost, you know, like, I mean, it's confounding to the mind that doesn't know Jesus. 
you know, that, that, that says, you know, that I'm, I'm American. I was born free and I'll die free and I'm autonomous. And I have, the, I, don't, I, I have the right to make my own decisions about what I'll do with my life. The idea of submitting our lives and laying our lives down is confounding, particularly even for Christians. But when I was looking through the notes, I was thinking, man, you know, because we see God in three primary offices. He is a, he's a, he's a king, right? A king has the right to give commands, and, and he's a judge. A judge has the right to issue edicts and verdicts that are, that are to be followed. He's a loving father, and a parent has the right to demand of their children that they would, they would, they would grow up in an environment, in a culture of obedience. And so when I was reading back through some of the notes of Growing Kids God's Way, it says, here's some of the fruit of obedience. It sets clear expectations for the child. The child knows what's expected at all times. It, it, if you teach obedience, you don't have to teach anything else. Ever thought of that? If your children are taught to obey, then all they have to do is obey what you ask them to do. It helps you decide when correction is necessary because instead of figuring out, well, was that a bad enough offense to put you in time out? Disobedience is disobedience. You're either disobedient or you're obedient. It teaches your children to obey your word and not rely on bribes or rewards for motivation. If you do this, I'll do that. It teaches your children to submit to authority and adopt an attitude of submission when obedience is required. Now, these... All those points have massive parallels for the kingdom of God. It's oftentimes simple, but sometimes it's life or death, like in the military, you know, when an order is given that could lead to someone living or dying, or the little kid that's about to run into a busy street. Stop! And, and, and the decision to obey the, or not obey could mean something really significant. In fact, the Bible points this out in our in our the father of the one who ushered in sin into the world, Adam. In his life, the life and death nature, it, the disobedience of Adam brought sin and death into the world. And it's the basis of the term original sin. You know, that, that for as by one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man, Jesus, obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the whole concept of original sin. It's, it's in this idea of, 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 of life and death obedience. So let me define it for you. Biblical obedience in particular. The idea of obedience is just submitting to an authority. We all have that understanding. But biblical obedience, it's a little deeper concept. And it means, in essence, to to oversimplify it, to hear God's word and to act accordingly to it. There's a number of Greek words that are used, but the two predominant Greek words that are used in the New Testament to convey the idea of obedience, one means to position yourself under someone by submitting to their authority and command, like bending your knee. You know, when you submit or surrender, you, you know, you, you, you get down in a position of surrender. Put your hands up, bow your neck, bowing the neck in prayer. You know, we bow our heads in prayer. We don't always do it, but when we do bow our, our, our you know why that's done? It's done to show submission. It's actually done, it was a sign of making your neck available for, you know. And so it, to bend our knee and bow our neck is one of the ideas of obedience. And another Greek word in the New Testament means to trust. Now, think about those two things coming together. To be willing to submit to another's authority, the Lord's authority, because I trust him. Oftentimes, it's really simple. Like I heard a story from one of my friends who works in the, in the uh, Muslim world who is doing this thing called Discovery Bible Study and obedience-based discipleship. And he, w- he met with him for the first week, and they looked at just the story of creation and read the story together and then asked the simple questions of, like, what do you see in this? What is God doing? What does this say about you? What are you going to do about it, and who are you going to tell? 
So from day one, before somebody's even following Jesus, embedded in their DNA is, is you've got to tell the story. And so this guy reads it and goes, well, what I see is, is that God created man and woman equal. That's, com- that's, that's very provocative to my upbringing. And he said, if this is true, it changes a lot of things. And he says, well, what are you going to do about it? He says, i tell you what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to make my bed. I'm not going to make my sister and my mom make my bed. And who are you going to tell about it? I'm going to tell them if they ask why I'm doing it. Sure enough, he goes home and he starts making his bed. And his sister's mind's blown and says, why are you doing this? He says, I'll tell you why I'm doing it. Because it says, uh, you really want to know why? She says, yeah. He says, well, I read this, there's this story in the Bible that God created the heavens and the earth. And he created men and women equal. And I can't demand of you to make my bed because you're no, you know, I'm no better than you. Week one. <laughs> you know? So sometimes it's as simple as, as, as a Muslim guy making his own bed. And other times it's really hard. You know, maybe it's hard in an in a internal way. You prayed for the Lord to move on your behalf, that you would, you know, you'd have that, that, you know, you'd have that promotion in life, that you would get to that new place of authority or a raise or whatever it may be, and God gives it to you, and then all of a sudden you have to actually lead the people according to his principles, or you have to, he, God says to you, no, I gave you a raise, how about generosity? And you're like, oh, man, you know, why do I have to read about the rich young ruler? You know, I thought it was just for me. And there's a real t- basic tension that underlies us, humanity, why we don't always obey or why, let me just say clearly, why we disobey the commands of Jesus. It's because we don't always have that trust. We don't have this deep, heartfelt confidence that Jesus is going to bring us more blessing than we'll get through our disobedience. We don't really fully hope and trust in the promises. And so uh, the, the, the promise of Jesus is, is you're always going to get, it's always going to come out better for you there's always going to be blessing and obedience that you don't find in disobedience. And Jesus says, you know, truly I tell you, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or parents or lands for my sake and for the gospel who won't receive a hundredfold now in this time with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The only way to have the power to follow Jesus in this costly way of loving him is to be filled with hope and confidence and trust that even if I lose my life doing it, obeying him, that I'm going to find it again. He's going to pick it back up again and richly reward me. And I'm motivated in this. Jesus tells me the motivation for this is this. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, Jesus is not a needy husband. He's not saying, you know, like, oh, if you love me, you'd scratch my back. You know, he's not saying this to manipulate action out of us. What he's saying is, it's simple. He says, if, if you feel, if you have a love relationship with me, then of course when I ask you to do something, you'll do it. It's, it's motivated by love. And so that, with that as a backdrop, I want to just exposit the, 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 the second part of that, that verse. If I, and let me do it this way. Let me just ask you this. If I were to ask you this question, how have you accepted the work of the cross? How have you accepted the work of the cross? Or if I just said, have you, have you accepted it? Have you accepted the work of the cross? I think most of you would say, yes, you have. And if I asked you what that is, what is the work of the cross, I think most of you would be able to give at least a simple articulation of what Jesus has done for us. The work of the cross is the crucifixion of Jesus for the sins of the world. Right? Right? Amen? And and it's true. And while it's true enough, it can be misleading because a better question to ask is, have you accepted the twofold work of the cross? Try that out on a few Christians and see what kind of reply you get. Have you you accepted 
the twofold work of the cross? Or what is the twofold work of the cross? That's because most of us are only really familiar with the one side of the cross, but no, not both sides. I, I grew up in a church, and I remember growing up in the church, and I only remember being taught one aspect of the cross. That is the cross on which Jesus died for me. That's what I grew up knowing. You too? You know, uh, and, and so on that cross, on this cross, Jesus is crucified as my substitute. He lays down his life for me. His precious blood was shed for the forgiveness of my sins. Not only that, the Bible says that Jesus laid on, that God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? And by identifying, when I identify with his sacrificial death, he becomes my substitute. I, I get to enter into his finished work. I, I made one with him there on the cross. And when he's on the cross, it's my sin being crucified on the cross. And thank God I don't have to pay the debt for my sin. He's paid it for me. And I don't have to go to the cross and be crucified for my sins. And I would suggest that almost every Christian is at least familiar with that aspect of the cross. It's the foundation of a evangelicalism. It's the basis of millions of sermons and blog posts and writings to millions of believers. It is the truth. And we thank God for it, right? You're waiting for the but? Well, and there's another side to the cross, another dimension of the same truth, which is not as well known and is hardly preached at all. And as a result, many believers are content to embrace the sinner's cross, that is, we've learned to pray the prayer and confess our sins that Jesus is our Savior and we, under, we understand and we accept the fact that he died as our substitute. And it's certainly true that Jesus did that. He died on the cross for us. But, but as I said, there's a twofold work of the cross and Peter gets at it in this passage. He alludes to both sides of the cross when he says, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Jesus suffered for us. That is the first aspect. That's his substitutionary death, what he did for you on the cross. But he also, it says, Peter says here, left us an example. That's the second aspect. So the work of the cross is twofold. First, Jesus is our substitute. Secondly, he's our example. The Greek here, where it says example, actually means a written copy of the alphabet. That's what it literally means, that Jesus is our, he's our basic primary A. B, it's, you know, he's the basic copy of the alphabet. So he's saying he is the very basic example that we're supposed to follow. And the follow steps part literally means to imitate the example by placing your feet in the treads left by his feet. This is literally what this is saying is, is that Jesus is the basic primer. He's all you, and, and he's going to step and he's going to leave a print. And where he leaves a print, you put your foot there. That's literally what this is, how you would translate this. In the first case, he took up the cross. In the second case, we take up the cross. The first work of the cross is, is for the sinner. The second work of the cross is for the disciple, the one who will follow. And Jesus said that the way to life in him is through both a narrow gate and a difficult path. And the gate is only the beginning of the journey. The gate has to do with his substitutionary suffering on our behalf. The gate, it isn't the destination. And so we have to have both the gate and the path. One is not complete without the other. Once we're through the gate, there's a path for us to walk. The gate makes it possible for us to walk the path, but the gate is incomplete without the path. The perfect life, the life, the, the eternal thing, the, 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 the very reward that we're after comes at the end of the path, not at the beginning of the path. 
This, this corresponds to this passage and this twofold work of the cross. The sinner's cross is the gate because Jesus is my substitute. Because he did this for me, he died for me, and he, he made atonement for my sins. I can now walk the path. The disciple's cross is the path. I, now I'm called to put my feet in his treads to follow in his example. Can you see the difference? Can you see the difference? Jesus says the way to life is through a narrow gate and a difficult path. A narrow gate's Jesus. It's narrow because he's the only way. There just isn't any other way. But, the, but, but why is the path so difficult? Well, partly because it's easier and much more appealing to just accept Jesus as a substitute than it is to accept him as an example. Let me say that another way. It's way more appealing to accept Jesus as Savior than it is to accept him as Lord. It's way easier to, to have one than to have them both. And with a simple prayer, I can kneel down an altar and say to him, Jesus, you're my substitute. You're my savior. But to make him my example means I have to get up from that altar and I have to walk out into the world and actually walk in his footsteps. It's not nearly as appealing. Why? Well, in the first case, I just have to embrace what he's done for me. And in the second case, I have to actually take up the disciples' cross and actually follow in the steps of the master. It it only takes a moment to pass through the gate, but it takes the rest of my life to walk the path. Peter wrote of this twofold work of the cross in such a simple and concise way. But But as I mentioned, you can look into the Gospels and see what a complex matter it was for Peter. I'll give you an example. Luke chapter 5 details a story where Jesus essentially really begins to engage Peter's heart. And you can see that, that, that Peter, much like an Iranian underground believer, actually begins to follow Jesus before he's accepted the full work of Jesus. He's not, he's not bent his knee and bowed his neck and, and, and confessed all the right confessions. He's not experienced the death and resurrection yet. But in this passage, Jesus comes up to Peter and there's a big crowd and he says, hey, they're, they're making way too much noise, and I, and I want to speak to them. I want to teach them. They're not going to be able to hear me like this. Let me stand in your boat. Put your boat out just a little bit, and it'll create like a natural amphitheater so I can preach. So he, so he asked him to do this, and, and Peter very simply obeys. He does what Jesus asked him to do. <clears throat> Jesus goes out. He teaches for a while. Then he turns to Peter, and he says to him something that's way more difficult. He says, hey, let's go put out in the deep water now and put the nets down, and we'll catch some fish. And Peter is thinking, you're a craftsman. You, you work, you know, you build door frames and tables and things like that. You're not a fisherman. I'm a fisherman. The type of nets that we use are nets that work at night, not during the day. Besides the fact I have holes in my net, I worked all night. We didn't catch a thing. But because you said it, I'll do it. You get what that is? What is that? That's just simple obedience, isn't it? Radical but simple obedience. He says, look, I don't think this makes any sense, but because it's you saying it, I'll go ahead and do it. He puts out, they catch so much, it's two boatfuls of fish, and it's such a significant thing that Peter then has revelation of who this is that's speaking to him and says to Jesus, I'm ashamed. I, get away from me. I can't even be in your presence. I don't have what it takes to be even near you. And then this starts this relationship, of, and Jesus says to Peter, follow me. <laughs> Follow me. Walk in my footsteps. Let me be your example. And from this little story, this example from Peter's life, you begin to learn how essential it is to obey God even in the smallest matters. The noisy crowd. 
they received the blessing of Peter's first little obedience. He put the boat out a little bit so that he could actually, Jesus could have a platform to preach. They're the, you know, our obedience always affects the people around us. It has blessing on the people that are around us. And at the conclusion of the lesson, the Lord says to Peter, put out in the deep water and, and, and let down the nets. And it's a second and a much bigger opportunity for Peter to say yes or no. But Peter, even though he felt the temptation, I think, you know, to be honest, the temptation to decline, he's a seasoned fisherman. He worked the entire night. And now this young carpenter teacher tells him to put out, you know, and go fishing again. But Peter his reply demonstrates the beginning of a lifetime of faith in God. He says, Master, we've worked all hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. And this fledgling disciple who didn't even yet know who Jesus was chose to obey the Lord and to leave the consequences of the decision of obedience to the Lord, to Jesus. And, but notice what happened as a result. Peter's obedience. Jesus demonstrates his power and his sovereignty over nature. And Peter and his partners started off the day thinking they had big, fat nothing to show for a whole night of work. But they ended up in complete amazement because they pulled in not one but two boatloads of fish. And saying yes to the Lord's request results in a miracle that transformed not only one fisherman's life, but actually the lives of the entire group. And Peter begins to follow Jesus. And it's all perfect from there. Oh, it's an up and a down, and Peter sees things throughout his life that have to confound him. He, you know, there's, there's a point where he's not very far from this very beach, you know, uh, not, not maybe a day's hike for them, up into the, the mountains where, you know, it was Caesarea Philippi, known today as, as, as Banos. Um, in Matthew 16, we see this story that, in, that, which tells us that Peter didn't always have that full understanding that he had here. And, and Jesus in Matthew 16, is, he, he shows up there as both our substitute and our example all in one chapter. First, there's Jesus as the substitute. He begins to show his disciples that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem to suffer on their behalf for the sins of the world to be killed and raised on the third day. For his sins? No, not for his sins, for our sins. And so, so, so in this, he's our substitute. And Peter takes offense to this, pulls Jesus over to the side and rebukes him. The only guy, this, uh, we see more about Peter than anybody else, but he's, he's the only guy who was both rebuked by Jesus and rebuked Jesus. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how they laugh about that in, in, in eternity, but that is, just cracks me up. He rebukes Jesus. Imagine G Peter rebuking the Lord Jesus over the issue of the cross. It, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to comprehend. Imagine how much more difficult it is to comprehend this before it happened. But Jesus turns back and then rebukes Peter and says, yes, I'm going to die, and I will go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the world. I am going to complete my, my substitutionary work. But the twofold work of the cross goes deeper than the physical death of Jesus. And so Jesus immediately begins to speak to them, not about his cross, but about their cross. And he says, if anyone desires to come after me and, and, and follow my example, then you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Peter objected to the death of the Lord and wanted to prevent his crucifixion. Jesus responds that not only do you have to let me go and do what, I, what I'm called to do, but if you want to actually follow me, then you have to take up your cross and come with me. Peter eventually learns a lesson. Eventually is the emphasis there. And, 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 and it, it's time for us. We have to learn the lesson as well. Jesus is both 
my substitute and my example. He's both my Savior and my Lord. He's both the narrow gate and the difficult path. If there's any doubt as to the reason that we oftentimes lack power or joy or faithfulness or spirit and truth wisdom in the face of a degrading culture, we only have to examine our attitude toward the cross. And if, 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 if the cross to us is something that only that Jesus saved us from so that I wouldn't have to go to, or is it something that Jesus saved us for? The fruit that we have in our lives or the lack of fruit tells the whole story. For there's never going to be, there never can be deep and abiding fruitfulness apart from embracing both the substitutionary work of the cross and the example and taking up our own cross. The question, of course, is, you know, I think the question that, that I hear a lot, that you're probably rolling around in your mind right now, is, is it possible for Jesus, though, just to be Savior and not Lord? Can I just pick up part of it? Can I accept salvation but not discipleship? Can I enter the gate but not walk the path? And, and, the, and the underlying concern that people have, if we're asking this, is, is there any possible venue by which I can pray the sinner's prayer and be saved from hell and then live my life however I want and still go to heaven when I die? It's a pretty revealing question, isn't it? One author, uh, commentator says, you know, it's for good reason. The cross, it takes two beams to make a cross. One's not enough. If we accept only half of the twofold work, then we haven't truly embraced the cross. If we continue to preach an easy gospel and bring, and, and, and bring sinners into some sort of easy Jesus by having them pray an easy prayer, then, then, we're, then we become guilty of propagating some other gospel, some lesser gospel, the gate without the path. You want an example that Peter got to see of this? A guy comes to Jesus one day. He happens to be rich, and he happens to be a lord, small l, lord. He comes to Jesus with the exact same question. He says, is there any possible way that I can get eternal life but live the way I want to live? This is what he's essentially asking Jesus. His primary concern is going to heaven when he dies, and so for a lot of us, that's the ultimate objective, and the motivation behind everything we do is, is we want to be saved from, from torment. In, in actuality, Jesus said comparatively little. You know, he says very little about going to heaven when you die compared to what he says about being obedient to the will of God in this life and producing fruit while we're still here. And so Peter would have been a witness. He would have been there to be a witness when a rich young ruler who wanted to be saved approached Jesus, and instead of Jesus offering him salvation, he offers him discipleship. Not just salvation, I should say. He offers him both. Jesus, it says this, then Jesus... Looking at him, the rich young ruler loved him and said to him, well, there's one thing you lack. You got all the stuff. You got the, you, you got the good job. You got the money coming in. You got things going well. You've been set up well in life. Go on your way and sell everything you have and give it away to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven instead of having it on earth. And then come, take up your cross, the second work, and follow me. I just, I always love passages like this in terms of, because somehow or another, we're able to get from Mark's telling of this, that Jesus was able to say, I, I, I just wonder how stark that must have felt to this guy. 
But Mark makes clear that Jesus did this full of love. He was able to say to this man, full of love, this is what it's going to take. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had a lot of money. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? Now, he doesn't say how easy it is for them. He says how hard. The twofold work of the cross is a hard saying both for people who are poor and people who are rich alike. Many, many though, turn away from, you know, sad and sorrowful at the thought of taking up the cross as a disciple because of the cost. And for that reason, oftentimes, we only preach the first half of the twofold work of the cross because we don't want everybody to come to our church. Right? I, I, my suspicion when I look at this story is that the rich young ruler would have eagerly accepted Jesus as substitute. Even if he didn't understand the cross, he would have said, oh, if you're going to go to the cross and die for the forgiveness of my sins so that I can then be in heaven forever, totally in. But the problem is, is that like all the other suggestions by the enemy, by our adversary, by the devil, it's only partial truth. The whole truth is that the work of the cross is twofold, and we can embrace both or we can embrace neither. But we can't keep one and discard the other. You, can be, you, know, you, you might be concerned that if we make salvation contingent on discipleship, then fewer people would get saved. But Jesus says that's the point. It, not that fewer people would get into heaven, but that he, said, he does say in Matthew 7, few find it. And what he means is that it's, a, it's, it is, it's, it's both easy, it's easy just to obey him, but it's also hard. Because it involves submission and it involves trust. And so what are we to do? Should we give, you know, something like false comfort to people who, who, are, who are unwilling to take up their cross and deny their self and follow Jesus? I was talking about this with, my, with our dear friend Avi Mizraki. We had 10 hours in a car together. We were talking a lot about this concept. And Avi said in perfect Avi fashion, no way, Jose. No way, Jose. We cannot do this. Instead, we have, to, we have to aspire deep within our souls to, to, by example, by following, our, putting our feet where he's tread, by placing our feet in the master's steps, that the only way to life is through death. The only way to reign with him is to, is to be willing to participate in even the fellowship of suffering and not just to hear his word, but to actually put it into practice that we become true disciples that way. Well, for Peter, his path, the reason I think his path is so interesting. Brian, you can come on up. How many of you... Let me just say it this way. Obedience that is motivated by love is a beautiful thing. To come to a point in our lives where we love somebody so much and we trust them so much that we're willing to obey even when we don't understand, it's an incredibly beautiful thing. But it's also completely counterintuitive. It's difficult. Jesus understood the difficulty of this when he asked people to follow him. I think he anticipated the fact that it would, it would grow. 
that our, our capacity, our ability, or even our willingness to obey would grow in time. As a parent, I can remember many times of, of asking, and, and look, for full disclosure's sake, Carol's a way better parent than I am. I'm not, that's not an exaggeration. I always say that we get about a C plus in our parenting. It's because she's an A. You can figure out the average. Um, you know, she's good at setting boundaries and keeping them and, 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 and having expectations and, and demanding. You know, look, you know, you don't, I've asked you to do this, do it. And I tend to be more of the, uh, you know, I get to the end of my rope and I'm like, do this. And if they don't, then I, you know, I could blow up. But I remember watching my kids a lot and having this confounding feeling in my heart that the Lord would oftentimes remind me was like me when I'd say something like, okay, get up and go to bed. And the last thing in the world they wanted to do at that point was get up and go to bed. Or, I don't know, you guys are all too old to have maybe be told get up and go to bed, but it's like get off your device or, you know, or, you know, do you do this work instead of the thing you want, whatever it may be. And you know that that feeling when you're told something like this, it's like, this is what I want to do, and you're telling me to do something else, which is very much part of how it is to walk with the Lord. Honestly. You don't have to acknowledge it right now, but honestly, that's very much, there's oftentimes, I don't always delight myself in Him. I don't always, I don't always have His desires and my desires lining up. Sometimes what I want and what He wants are radically different. And so, when he says, Jeff, I want you to do this, my natural inclination sometimes is, ah, I don't really want to do that. And I can even live in the tension and the frustration and the splinter of my mind of going, man, I, I think it's what the Lord wants me to do. But as I've matured in him, I've, I've become at least like my kids when I would say, okay, I want you to go to bed. And they would pretty well obey. Like they would, it, 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 I don't know if it was immediate, but you know, within a reasonable amount of time get up and begin to make their way to you know to get ready for bed but when they would walk down the hall like if the hall was wide enough or narrow enough they might they if they would have had their fingernails embedded in both sides of the wall they'd be dragging their feet and shaking their head and then and you could everything in their demeanor everything in their posture so so what they were doing is they were technically being obedient right they were, they were I, get ready for bed. They'd get up and they'd move from where they were to where they needed to be to get ready for bed. So everything technically was saying this is obedience, but in their heart, in their heart, they're rebellious. Basically, what they're saying in their heart is this is the last thing in the world I want to do. I'm only doing it because you're an authority over me. And how often am I like this before Jesus? The word actually tells us that that he loves obedience more than sacrifice. That he says that when, we're, when, we're, when we sacrifice and we'll do things that he asks us to do, but we have rebellion in our heart, he says it's as bad as the sin of witchcraft. That our motives matter. And so for Peter, this was such a challenging thing, and he denies the Lord. He, he, he cuts off the ear of a guy because he doesn't want to do it Jesus' way. Jesus is arrested, and, and, and even though he has the authority, when he speaks his name, I am he, six to seven hundred men fall down as dead. Jesus could have just walked away. Jesus, I think, all right, guys, get back on your feet. Come on. 
Here I am. You can arrest me. He, he submits himself to being arrested. Peter says, not going to happen on my watch. <laughs> Takes his knife out and cuts off Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant. And Jesus bends down, picks up Malchus's ear, puts it on, and I think tenderly but strongly rebukes Peter. Says, this isn't the way. And I think the shame of that moment, you know, Peter again going, I don't get this. Peter then warms himself by a fire. He goes from being fired up for Jesus, so much will cut off an ear, to eight verses later in John 18, warming himself by a fire and denying that he even knows him. And you'd think that the end's over. Jesus is resurrected, and in Mark's gospel, it says that he says, hey, go tell the disciple, the, 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 the apostles, the disciple, and Peter to meet me. He meets him in the Galilee, and the book of John tells us that, again, guess where he meets him? As far as we know from where this happens, according to the Bible, about from here to my house, away from where he met him the first time and said, let's, let's go fishing and have a miracle, that's about how far he is away on the beach in the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And, he, and he's on the, on the shore cooking fish, and Peter's fishing and says, wait, I know who that is. That's Jesus. He jumps out of the boat and makes his way to Jesus, and he has breakfast with Jesus. And Jesus then takes him aside and goes for a walk on the beach there and says to Peter, Peter, on the same path, he's the gate, he's the path. And he says on the same, he reengages Peter on that same path, and he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? You get the motivation by love. And Peter was grieved because he'd said that to him three times. Do you love me? And he says to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus gives him this command. Feed my sheep. And if that's just where it ended, you'd go, okay. This is, this is, this is literal. I'm just going to read to you the word of God. Jesus to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was going to die to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Put your feet where I walked. And I think it's that Understanding that led Peter eventually in as, as an old man after even, you know, more failure and more success, more walking the difficult path to be able to say, well, he didn't just go to the cross and die for us and suffer for us, but he also went as an example that we take up our cross and follow in his steps. Peter walked out that path and you can too. We can do this. Stand with me if you're able. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to kneel down at the altar. And at the altar, I'm going to thank him for what he's done on my behalf. And then I'm going to ask him to give me the grace that's necessary to get up out of here and walk out of this room today and to follow his example, to put my feet where he's walked and to live like him. Maybe you want to join me. So Jesus, we thank you for that twofold work of the cross. We won't take one without the other. We want the gate and the path. We want what you've done for us on the cross. And we want to take up our cross and follow you.
It's not easy. It's not even an easy thing to say in a prayer as a pastor because I recognize there's a real cost in that. And as I prayed earlier, Lord, before I even preached, we're not looking to establish a fellowship that's fake. It's full of people who would claim to know you with our lips but deny you with our lives. We want to go beyond the appearances and we want to go down into the depths of being real and following you with our whole lives. And so, Jesus, we ask for the grace to follow you wherever you take us. If you feel led, you can come forward and join me.